Welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast, brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. You can find out more by going to oneatticus.com. Today we have quite a lot of information to go through. There is a little bit of update work to be done regarding the stock market. And then we do have two items, two relatively large items, that I wanted to sort of think through on today's podcast. I don't have a ton really pinned down, but I wanted to share sort of my thought process with all of you, some of the research that I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and the applicable nature of such research. So, as we like to do, starting out with the marketplace, let's take a quick look at some of the indexes. We will not spend a whole lot of time on this one today, simply because there's so much other information we have to get through. The S&P today trade, or Recording this on Sunday, so all of this information is regarding the 23rd or 20th of March. Is that the 20th of March? 24th. Sorry. It was the week of the 20th, the 24th ending Friday, March 2023. S&P 500, 3970, holding up relatively good. Holding above 3800, S&P looks stable for now. The NASDAQ 100 index trading at 12,767, nearly a new relative high. We wicked up, doing very strong in the tech sector. Stock market looks like it is starting to recover. Dow Jones, a little bit better here. We had that big sell-off the week of the 6th, obviously leading into SVB, Signature, the whole ordeal, the debacle which feels like 10 years ago, but was only a couple of weeks. Dow Jones trading at 32,237. We did get to a low of right around 31,460, so we're doing a little bit better today. Russell 2000, not so good here, trading at 1747. We did get to a low of 1703, right at that 1700, looks like. For now, if it follows the other three indexes, as we mentioned before, the 1700 level is going to be where we're going to find some demand. That's where we peaked out back in, that would be December and January of 2019 and 2020. And we're back at that level looking for more buyers. Looks like we may potentially find them here. Again, we will have to update you next week following what happens this week if we see a bounce or not but given the reaction from the rest of the marketplace it may follow suit depending on information going on this week we have natural gas trading at two dollars and 21 cents right around the lows here nothing substantial we did see that big jump in natural gas from around two dollars to right at three dollars we peaked at three dollars Now back down 80 cents to $2.20, crude oil. If we can zoom in here, trading at, if we look at the last today, that'd be 
69.26 was the closing price on Friday. It is down. So we did fall below that 70 level. Our next level of support that we are watching here is 61.75. We'll see. We said we mentioned for a decent amount of time that pennant pattern broke lower on the pennant pattern below 75.25. Now we're trading at 69.26. We got to a low of 64.62. So we'll see if this wants to retest that range again between 64.62 and 61.75. Very possible we get back down there given the recent trend, unless something changes in the oil and crude markets or energy markets as a whole. I believe we did see some updates out of OPEC over the past week and a half, but they've kind of been pushed under the larger news events of Credit Suisse, UBS, and over the last uh, 48 hours, Deutsche Bank. So a lot going on on that front. We have silver doing very good, 23.34. Obviously trading very well off of those lows. Even better for gold, trading at 19.83. We got above 20 or 2,000 last week, doing very, very well. Obviously there is a flight to safety. We are seeing in the precious metals, that's obviously going to happen in times of especially credit banking and liquidity crises. We've got, where's the US dollar here? We have the 10-year treasury trading at 3.38. Uh, been a lot of buying. In March 10th, 10-year 10 yield was at 4%. We're down nearly 60 to basis points from that level, 3.38. Very big buying in 10-year treasuries, obviously more significant in the shorter end of the curve. I believe we went through this on one of the previous podcasts discussing the significant moves in the short and long-term treasury yields and bond buying and bond purchases. Obviously, as you guessed it, Jeff Snyder has done tons of work on this front. I always like to reference him when it comes to these specific topics, just because he has more insight, wisdom, and knowledge as it comes to specifically the bond market. But I try to keep up as best I can. Uh, we have a couple other things here. I was just looking at UBS, Credit Suisse, and Deutsche Bank. UBS trading at 1897. Very, very interesting chart here looking at uh, UBS. Had some very volatile trading since the March, essentially since the start of March. Credit Suisse, obviously no point in really looking at that. That's all said and done. That is over. The last uh, number we got there was trading at 86 cents per share. So down nearly 99% from not only the highs, but really it essentially doesn't matter to even look at Credit Suisse. It's, it's said and gone and sold and UBS is taking it over and so on and so forth. Interesting enough, though, we do see Deutsche Bank trading down to $9.35 all the way uh, previously trading at $13.48. This is from the end of January to the end of March. We are down 30% in Deutsche Bank and there are some interesting elements to that that we will lightly cover today. There's a whole lot that I was researching and there's a whole lot that 
I'd like to cover today, but it's a little difficult because there's, there's so many components of it. But one thing that I want to do as we're discussing Deutsch or Deutsche, Deutsche Bank, however you want to say it, is there's an article here from Seeking Alpha. Let's cover the bank first. Let's see what's going on. And then there's an interesting part of the balance sheet for European banks more specifically that I wanted to cover to keep an eye on. This is something that us investors can do, us retail investors, um, some small time investors. This is some, this is another component of the sort of research realm in which we can garner some more insights into the health of a bank, the credit of a bank and the liquid structure, liquid funding, liquid capital, so on and so forth of any specific bank, more specifically in the Eurobank area. I'm not sure how well this relates to the U.S. domestic banks, but as we can clearly see, the issues in the banking sector are not solely uh, a problem for American banks. They're European banks, and I'm assuming there are also, you know, Russian, Chinese, Asian banks, even African banks all tied into this, but we obviously don't have the same type of regulatory oversight and reporting requirements for those institutions. So I don't think we can really ever know what's going on in those banks. And let's add India into that mix as well. So from the Seeking Alpha article, Deutsche Bank shares sank 13.5% in Frankfurt Friday and a sign that bank worries are not in the rearview mirror. The stock, down 9% in U.S. pre-market trading, was looking at a third straight day of losses. Share of lost about a fifth over their value this month. The five-year credit default swaps jumped more than 220 basis points before easing back. They were at 210, about seven basis points above Thursday's close. Thursday saw the largest one-day rise in history, according to Refinitiv data cited by Reuters. The Deutsche Bank credit default swap level is still way below that of Credit Suisse, though Credit Suisse default swaps peaked above 1,000 basis points. Yeah, Credit Suisse was obviously a canary in the coal mine, you could say. Additional Tier 1 AT1 bonds were also under pressure. The $7.5 AT1 bond yield was around 22.9%, double what it was two weeks ago. Just yesterday, Swiss, regular, Swiss regulator FINMA, F-I-N-M-A, stood by the wipeout of $17 billion in 81 debt through the shotgun wedding of Credit Suisse and UBS. Quote, not entirely sure why Deutsche Bank is suddenly in focus, but seems a combo of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's comments about no comprehensive deposit insurance putting banks back in the limelight. And then Deutsche Bank deciding to redeem a note early, which has sparked some more concern. Michael Brown, a market analyst at Trader X in London. Quote, going to end up being a bit of self-fulfilling in this dangerous, or is the dangerous thing. Sorry, let me reread that quote. Going to end up being a bit of self-fulfilling is the dangerous thing, with shares dumping 10% or so and credit default swaps blowing out. Then again, this could just be a convenient excuse for everyone to trim risk exposure and cut positions into the weekend, Brown said. Which is an interesting perspective, and I'd have to agree to some extent that that is very likely a component of this. The risk to the banking sector isn't necessarily solely 
the liquidity and credit problems in the banking sector, but it is the psychology and behavior of depositors, investors, and all other market participants, which can induce self-fulfillment when it comes to, especially when it comes to bank positioning. And this is a little bit of what I wanted to get into regarding Deutsche Bank and some of the other banks and, and, and banks really in general. So George Gammon had a video yesterday or the day before, I believe it may have been the 24th or the 23rd. Uh, he posted this and it was discussing obviously Deutsche Bank and he was reading a zero hedge article, I believe. And, uh, you know, not even mentioning the article itself. I, I didn't really go into the article because they discuss essentially the same types of problems that we just covered in, in the Seeking Alpha article in a little more detail. And obviously George kind of went into his own analysis here, but one of the things that he mentioned that he obviously didn't go into, that's why I went into it a little bit more, was the, this was the CET1. So, Banks, and uh, I'll keep this in, in focus of European banks, European banks, because of the Basel Accord, I believe is where this regulatory requirement came in, have a essentially a, a capital structure. And these are required by, by law. And the capital structure is broken down into three tiers. Tier one is regarded as core capital. Tier two capital is gone concern or supplementary capital and tier three is some of the lowest quality capital and as going through a lot of this the reason i wanted to point this out was in the eurozone banks are legally required to hold a certain capital ratio in their cet1 and the CET is the Common Equity Tier 1. So that's a, a type of capital. And what's included in CET 1 are common shares plus the stock surpluses plus retained earnings uh, plus the common shares issued by subsidiaries and held by third parties. And then also included, which makes Tier 1 Capital Tier 1, is the CET 1 plus this additional Tier 1. This is called AT1 Capital. And... It was mentioned in this Seeking Alpha article here as the dollar AT1 bond yield. So what's <clears throat> included in, in this AT1 is it's titled uh, Accumulated Other Comprehensive Income. And this was the component that that sort of stuck out to me. Obviously, we, we don't need to go through Tier 2, Tier 3. Um, Tier two includes, you know, hybrid capital instruments, subordinated term debt. Tier three is market risk, commodity risk, FX risk, and, and you know, it's the lowest quality. Um, but I was I was interested in looking into this AT1, this accumulated other co comprehensive income. The reason being, well, I found it in here. I, I wrote down some notes on this. And I'll just read to you what, what what's included in AOCI. Um, and that's obviously what we just read here, the accumulated AOCI, other comprehensive income. So included in AOCI is unrealized gains and losses on equity netted below retained earnings, gains and losses on investments, pensions plan, pension plans, 
hedging transactions. That's that's the big thing that kind of stood out to me. And all of this information, from what I can tell, is held under the OIC account found on the balance sheet. So this was the big thing that, that sort of reminded me of what occurred with Silicon Valley. So it says companies can designate investments as, quote, available for sale, held to maturity, or trading securities. And the unrealized gains and losses on these instruments are reported on the OCI. What stood out to me was if you remember the Macro Alf article we read when he was discussing Silicon Valley Bank was one of the largest problems with Silicon Valley Bank was the HTM unrealized returns. That's what in, in many ways sparked the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is the specifically held to maturity securities in the form of a sort of longer term treasury securities. The reason they were so problematic was, well, ZERP, which was the zero interest rate policy over the last, you know, give it 15 years since the great monetary financial crisis of 2006 to 2009. I, you know, you like to say eight, but it was really a range. Well, we can say eight. <laughs> and the unrealized losses sparked fear in depositors. And as depositors started to pull out, well, deposits from that specific institution, as we mentioned, this is all ledger, you know, denominations, ledger numbers, whatever, just ledger <laughs> leverage. <laughs> I don't even know the best way to say it. it. You know, it doesn't leave the banking sector. It just, you know, moves from one institution to another. But regardless of that point, when depositors pull out their liquidity from a bank and a bank has a huge position in, you know, these held to maturity securities, and they're holding an unrealized loss because they bought at low rates and those, the bond values, whatever it is, they can't sell them and realize those losses. You know, maybe you bought them at a par value of 100, for example. And since that point in time, after rates started to get hiked, the face value of those bonds fell by some, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40%. And now that bonds value is 60 cents on the dollar. And you don't need to realize those losses. You hold those to maturity and then you get your par value. But if you lose all your deposits, you lose your, well, liquidity, you, you lose your funding. And then you start to have to sell those securities to make up for the capital loss from depositors withdrawing the capital. And so you're forced to realize those gains. The Federal Reserve started a new tool after announcing they didn't need a new tool called the term or bank term lending for program, I believe. The BTFP, BTFP, the bank term funding program. I believe that was the one they started on Friday, uh, the 12th or Sunday, the 12th, I believe, almost immediately following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And where essentially that facility does is they allow banks that have these, say, 
HTM securities to bring them to the Fed as collateral and the Fed will give them the par value, 100% margin, or the 100% margin par value of that security of that collateral. So say you buy a bond for a dollar or say you buy a bond for a hundred dollars at a certain time, you have about five years left till maturity. The you're losing a bunch of depositors. You either have to realize the loss and you know, currently that, that bond is trading at $60. So either you have to realize that $40 loss, or you can use that bond and bring it to the federal reserve as collateral. They'll give you a hundred dollars for it. If, if I'm completely mistaken on that, please, somebody who's listening, who understands it better than I do comment, send us an email. I need to make sure that I'm getting this correctly, but at least from what I can tell, that is how it works. So the reason I got into this whole CET one AOCI is because I, I find it interesting because that's where a lot of this is held. That's where this problem is being held in. And you can find it in the OCI account. So if you are doing your own due diligence, if you are doing your own research, one place to look that you may not have been looking before, and I definitely was not looking before at when I was looking at balance sheets, I was not looking at the OCI account. Keep an eye on this. And in Europe, they have a minimum ratio requirement of four and a half percent. So they have to have uh, the CET1 ratio of at or above four and a half percent. The last time in that Zero Hedge article that George Gammon was reading through on his show was, I believe, for Deutsche Bank, it was around 13 and a half percent. So, and they used it as a, as a methodology of saying, we are liquid, we are stable. But regardless of that, I get the sense that these ratios may be subject to great volatility depending on the faith of depositors, depending on the action of money markets and of the dollar liquidity and dollar funding markets. If I'm wondering if there's a large risk here, sort of like what we saw, if you ever watched the movie Margin Call, where banks who were packaging these CDOs or uh, MBS had to hold all of those securities on the balance sheet while they're packaging these products and since they're all mortgages, they didn't necessarily look into the potential threat that caused when the volatility ratios or volatility bands became too excessive for the balance sheet and that leverage put severe strain on the bank's liquid capital. And I'm wondering if this is the same type. Obviously, it's not the same exact thing. Obviously, we're dealing with different instruments here and we're dealing with essentially different markets and different individuals and, and participants in the markets. But I'm wondering, I'm just wondering if this is the same type of event where this is a, an account, this is a pool of securities, a pool of instruments that have a certain risk associated, which isn't being completely realized in the current marketplace by, you know, maybe some analysts or, you know, some others, but I'm assuming within these these specific banks, they, they see exactly what's going on. But obviously, we saw that they didn't see that in 2008 or 2007. It's very possible 
uh, the same could be occurring today. So that's just one thing that I wanted to sort of start this analysis bit out. I was looking through some of this. I'm not done with my research on these accounts, the tiers, the structure, the capital structure of these banks. There's still a lot more to go through. Those are some of the preliminary notes that I had down from some of the research I was doing yesterday. Today, a little different. I was looking into something else. Uh, I was watching a Snyder video. He was he was discussing the, well, it was titled here, The Huge Historic Moves Keep Rocking the Global System as Governments Start to Panic. And he discusses here uh, some of the Treasury bill auctions, which actually I, I found extremely interesting. Uh, surging prices, plummeting even on zero yields. Repo fails jump. Uh, foreign governments used historic amount of their treasury securities. They had to, uh, they had in custody of FRBNY, so Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And he just mentions that the crisis is, is ongoing. Um, but definitely watch his, his videos because he does, I, I don't have time really to go through them today, but he goes through the, the four and eight week treasury bill auctions, which I mean, they kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, so that little teaser out there for, for all of you listening, if you want to go and learn more about what's happening in the auctions of uh, Treasury Securities. But what I was looking at, there, well, there's a lot. So one of the things that, that we'll cover today, so we can kind of keep our, our time to a, a relative minimum. We don't need to go too crazy, too far into all the other things that I was looking into today. Um, one of the things I was uh, looking at that we'll just briefly mention was the Euro dollar futures contracts. Um, keeping an eye on those, there has been a decent amount of buying in these securities, uh, almost unprecedented amount of buying in these securities. There was relatively low volatility uh, leading up until obviously March uh, 7th to the 10th. Following March 10th, there was a, well, even leading up to it, I mean, really going back to March 8th, there started to be, started to see some activity in the GEM. So this is the 2024, I believe either September or January um, contracts in Euro dollar futures started to see activity in the 8th of March. So before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, we started to see some action, but more so to the point, huge buying in Euro dollar future contracts following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the continuing volatility, elevated prices at the short end, extremely volatile prices at the long end, seeing heavy buying, a surge, a sort of collateral run, you could say, where institutions and money market players are heavily investing in these hedging securities because there is uncertainty and risk continuing in the marketplace. And that leads us into a little bit of what we wanted to discuss and what I wanted to discuss a little more today. Uh, a couple of things that we can try to tie together here. Um, first, I'll start out with this. So as I was sort of looking through and sort of digging in and getting into the rabbit hole, I found this and I came across this BIS working paper. Uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn at Liam Hennessy, you saw that I posted a screenshot of the study with a couple of highlights in it. 
And the link to the paper, and it's, it's titled, From Turmoil to Crisis, Dislocations in the FX Swap Market Before and After the Failure of Lehman Brothers. This was a study and working paper published by, I'm going to butcher this name, Naohiko Baba and Frank Packer in July of 2009. And obviously, not everything is completely correlated one-to-one -one between the two instances, but just to get an idea, in the introduction it states,